You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. Thanks for tuning into Mining Stock Education. I'm Bill Powers, your host, and joining me again is Rick Rule, uh, the retired stockbroker of Sprott Global, but now with Rule Investment Media. Rick does his own interviews and produces his own content on YouTube, and I'm going to link to that in the show notes below. Go ahead and subscribe to Rick's channel to stay abreast of what he is producing, uh, independent of coming on a show like this where someone like me gets to ask him questions. But Rick, thanks for coming back on the show. And my first question deals with in this market that we're in, in the, the junior mining stock market, what is a tradable shell worth? And I asked this question in the context of last week, I observed uh, an exploration company that IPO'd about six to nine months ago, some bad drill results came out and the market cap actually got down to about 1.5 million, yet they had 2 million in the bank. So I began to ask myself the question, what is, how, wh- what is the base level here? Because that sure went lower than what I would have thought. Uh, how, do you, how do you view that, the, what a shell, tradable shell is worth? Well, not all shells are created equal. Um, a, a shell that is put together by, let's call it a good fabricator, uh, Murray Sinclair in Vancouver comes to mind, uh, where uh, the shell structure is tight, uh, where most of the stock is deliverable to the new control group, where you can be relatively certain because of the provenance of the founders uh, that there are no skeletons in the closet. Those premium shells can be worth a uh, million dollars over cash. Uh, much more common uh, are shells that weren't built to be shells, but rather came about as a consequence of failure. They've been rolled back and cleaned up. Uh, and because the, pro- the possibility of skeletons in the closet, uh, be they uh, environmental liabilities or unpaid creditors, uh, because it is difficult to track where the stock is and who owns it, uh, the premiums associated with those in the aftermarket can go as low as $100,000, depending on uh, how messy the circumstances that one acquires. Uh, shells that have no cash in the treasury tend to have lower premiums, but not for the reasons that you would expect. They have lower premiums because the expectation there is that they're undisclosed liabilities, that the money got spent, uh, the money ran out, and probably not all of the contingent liabilities were discharged. So, I mean, I know what you're looking for, which is what everybody's looking for, a simple one-size-fits-all answer. Uh, unfortunately, in 45 years of speculating, I've never found one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so many variables because in some markets, even a bad promoter can just announce an exploration program and they have a $100 million market cap, whereas last week I saw $1.5 million market cap. So, I was trying to come to an understanding putting those two things together because it definitely went lower than what I would have thought. Well, one of the things that happens is that uh, you're wise to look at cash levels because it tells you when they're going to have to finance again. But the idea that cash is worth cash is not true uh, because these companies commonly spend a million or two a year uh, staying in business. And if a company has a million and a half dollars in cash, what it means is that they have maybe 14 months worth of running room. You really need to wrap your head around who they are, uh, how much more money can they raise, and what are they likely to do with the money that they have. Uh, There was a point in time where uh, earlier in my career, 
because I had uh, a reasonable amount of earth science knowledge and a lot of finance knowledge that I looked at these companies from a value investing point of view uh, and treated them as net nets, which is to say that the market caps were less than cash. What I neglected to think about in my 20s was that that cash was a rapidly depleting asset. (laughs) And I engaged in something that Doug Casey described as catching falling safes, uh, (laughs) which which is, as he also so inelegantly put it, hard on the arms. Uh, so the analysis uh, is always more subtle than one would hope. Rick, on that note, uh, a fund manager told me in 2018, he said, Bill, $5 million in the hands of the wrong management team is worth zero. <laughs> so I, I never forget that. <laughs> How true. But Rick, when you're investing in an explorer that's IPOing, and they're IPOing with one flagship project. Is that a red flag to you? If something goes wrong, would you like to see them have maybe two projects at least close to drill ready status? I would like to have it run by somebody who I know and love and trust. And in addition to having it run by somebody who I know and love and trust, uh, I would like to see people who are key shareholders who provide adult supervision uh, to what I call the major ego in the company. Uh, in very, very, very early stage companies, uh, I care much less about the geology than I care about the sociology. If uh, Bob Quartermain were to come to me and say, I'm backing this new young geo, and I think he or she is a potential superstar, and by the way, uh, they put a quarter of their own net worth in it, Uh, and I put X in it, and -and so-and-so put Y in it. You know, my basic response is sign me up. Uh, I don't need to know much about the property because Bob Quartermain has already studied the property, and I know and love and trust him. If something is brought to me uh, that is alleged to be the greatest thing since sliced bread geologically, but it's run by a butcher and a baker and a candlestick maker, that is a, a coalition of great storytellers, I don't care. I don't want to know. I have no interest. It's in the, in the early stage, it's people, people, and people. What about at the development stage? Are there any Rick Rulisms of thumb, Rick Rule of thumbs that you apply? Just, you know, like back of the napkin type things you look for when you're just assessing a development stage project? Me personally, um, I'm biased against small projects. So if somebody has a, a project that has sort of Oh, less than a billion and a half uh, in situ recoverable reserves and resources, uh, or better yet, uh, the equivalent of a million ounces, gold equivalent ounces. So, uh, you know, a billion eight. I don't want to know. Everything that can go wrong with a big mind can go wrong with a small mind. A big mind can make you big money and a small mind can't make you big money. So uh, scale matters to me. The resumes, again, the people matter to me too. If the development project is, as an example, in the Abitibi in Quebec, I want the people developing it to have development experience in the Abitibi in Quebec. (laughs) I want the resumes to be well, well, well suited to the task at hand. I want to look, if it's development stage, uh, really truly development stage, not advanced exploration, but development. I want to look at the feasibility study I want to know who did it 
And I want to pass it by somebody who has operational experience that's relevant to see if the input costs are reasonable. Uh, I don't have any interest in a development project that's being financed to production with a preliminary economic assessment or a pre-feasibility study. Those documents are not sufficient to give you enough knowledge that you can invest in development to, you know, Rubicon was a great example of that. They raised, you know, $500 million on a preliminary economic assessment. Even if it's run of mine, heap leach, you won't touch it if it's a PE. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. I consider that advanced exploration. You know, I'll I'll look at it very differently, but if it's being sold to me as a development project, um, no, not particularly interested. I, if it if they're looking for uh, equity or debt around production, uh, I want a feasibility study. Rick, the the coming um, deficit in copper, the supply deficit is is glaring from most analysts that I talk to, and I think you would agree. But then you could also point out. In the last cycle of copper, a lot of those big projects, copper projects, didn't advance through feasibility onto production. What insights could you share with us, particularly with copper investors today, of learning from those previous copper development projects that didn't move forward into production yet? I think capital efficiency is the problem. When you're looking at a material like copper, you need to understand that you will or rather the company will be in production for 30 or 35 years, probably in one of these big things. And you're going to see high prices. You're going to see low prices. So one of the things that you look for is uh, all in costs that are in the best quartile in the business. The deposit has to win the last man standing contest, which means uh, that it needs to survive bad copper prices. And it needs to be in the best quartile in terms of capital efficiency. Capital efficiency really sort of is about return on capital employed. Uh, What is the internal rate of return? What is the payback? What is the net present value uh, relative to market cap and relative to upfront capital costs? Uh, We need to understand that uh, building a, a great big copper mine, be it a porphyry or you know, or a said hosted deposit uh, like Ivanhoe is doing in Africa is extremely capital intensive and extremely time intensive. So if somebody is using $4 uh, on a feasibility study, you need to understand in your own mind that it might take five years to finance and construct this mine. And the copper price may be very different. (laughs) So you would be well advised, despite the fact that uh, the feasibility study gives you great economics at $4 copper, uh, you might be very, very, very well advised to risk it. Uh, Again, and I hate to belabor the point, uh, if you are uh, around a company that, as an example, uh, intends to put a big high altitude uh, Argentine or Chilean porphyry into production, uh, you want a team that has done it before. If somebody's going to allocate $5 billion, some of which is yours, on your behalf, uh, you need more than a good horse. Uh, You need a real good jockey. (laughs) And so those are the things I look at. And by the way, I I agree with you that almost irrespective of what we do, 
uh, short of having uh, a recession or a depression, that we're going to experience physical shortages in the copper market. The only thing that I see that can derail the copper market would be a global recession uh, or some sort of 2008 style panic followed by something more severe than a recession. If we don't increase demand for copper, if demand for copper straight lined, uh, but the world didn't fall apart, uh, it's absolutely clear to me that in five years, our productive capacity is going to be much lower than our productive capacity is today, simply because the great big copper mines that the world has been running off of for so many years, Chuki Kamada, Escondida, Grassberg, uh, these things are long of tooth. Uh, you know, they were discovered when I was a young man and had hair. Uh, they were put in production in the time of my, you know, in the prime of my career. And I'm retired. Uh, so if we don't experience an economic slowdown that really markedly reduces demand for copper, uh, I think the copper price has the potential to surprise us. I think, too, that when people look at the copper price, if they look at the copper price in the West, where you and I are, they think about electric vehicles. They think about all kinds of sexy stuff. You know, um, and that'll help. But I see that as the icing on the cake. Uh, I, I think that copper will benefit from urbanization around the world and from the ascent of humankind. Uh, I think particularly it will benefit from the fact that 1.2 billion people worldwide don't have access to basic electricity, but will in a decade. Uh, and it isn't just the copper that gets that electricity to them or the copper used in generating it. But what happens to their house, what happens to their way of life, uh, use the electricity that is delivered to them is extremely copper intensive. Arcana Silver is on the verge of bringing the world's highest grade silver mine into production. The Revenue Virginia's mine in Colorado has proven and probable silver reserves grading nearly 37 ounces per ton silver, with all-in sustaining production costs of only $8 per ounce of silver. The mine is fully funded and permitted with infrastructure already in place and has announced production will commence in 2021. Achieving successful production should result in a significant upward share price re-rating on the Lassonde curve. Arcana trades under the ticker AU N in Toronto in AUNFF in New York. To learn more, go to arcana.com. That's A U R C A N A.com. You and you're at Sprott. I know a lot of your brokers there cover the Australian mining stocks. So you would yeah. put some of your North American clients in Australian mining stocks. But I've also talked to North American mining speculators who say, Bill, there's enough opportunities in, on the stock exchanges in the time zone that I live that I'm just going to focus there. What would you say to a North American with that perspective? And for those North American mining investors that are interested in ASX stocks, what word of caution or advice, primary advice would you give them? Um, I think ignoring the Australian <clears throat> mining stocks probably ignores the single most promising sector in the market. I would be delighted if they ignored it because it would give me a competitive advantage. Uh, to the extent that 100,000 people who had the ability to compete with me unilaterally disarmed, that would be wonderful for me. It would be very foolhardy for them. In terms of what you do, uh, I think you need to benchmark. First of all, you, you need to develop the skills that we talked about in our last interview. You need to develop the skills yourself. Uh, not that you can do painstaking, painstaking deep securities analysis, but rather the ability to put simple benchmarks in place. Uh, and you need to include uh, 
Australians in that game. The Australians came into a precious metals and minerals bull market <clears throat> before the North Americans did. And the consequence of that is that the Australian junior market woke up before the North American market did. The consequence of that is that their exploration cycle started two and a half years earlier. And the consequence of that is that they're making more discoveries than we are. But there's a second reason to look at Australia in preference to North America. Uh, Australia doesn't have a Trudeau and it doesn't have a Biden. And the political risk in Australia, while it's still there, I'm not trying to say that it isn't a you know, socialist would-be worker's paradise, depending on the state. But the political risk, headline political risk nationally in Australia is much less than it is in the United States and much less than it is in Canada. People who uh, participate, as I do, in Canadian mineral exploration are in for a real shock uh, after the upcoming election. Uh, I suspect that Trudeau will be re-elected uh, and pre-election, his pre-election budget was all about free beer and a free lunch. He's basically bribing Canadian voters with their own money. The post-election budget, I suspect, when he goes to pay for this, will be truly, truly, truly ugly. Uh, I think people seriously downplay the political risk in Canada at the federal level and provincially in a lot of provinces. The provinces that are exception to that are, are probably Saskatchewan uh, and Quebec. But I think that Australia <clears throat> gives you first world political uh, diversification that people uh, need to look at. Uh, a company that you invested in, I believe, when you were at Sprout a few years ago, at least it was at your symposium, was Ely Gold Royalties. They're being yes. taken over by Gold Royalty Co Corp. Now that you're retired, maybe you could comment a little on this transaction and whether you like it. Uh, amalgamation needs to happen. It, it needs to happen. I was uh, an early believer in Eli Gold and, in fact, <clears throat> wrote the relaunch check. Uh, the check that allowed them to go more fully into the royalty and streaming business, which was great. Uh, I was followed on in that circumstance by was my former Was that six million? Partner. That was six million, Rick, if I remember? I, I forget what we gave them, but okay. uh, it, it was an attractive financing from our point of view. Uh, and the follow-on financing was provided by my former partner, uh, Eric Sprott. We did it because those two guys had unique access to exploration development stage royalties in Nevada. You know, they were landmen that were on a first name basis with all the ranchers and frankly, all the rock packages in Nevada. And we saw these guys being able to get out and hustle, not having to buy royalties from other people, but rather create them or buy them from the originators, which we thought was a durable competitive advantage. It turned out to be true. Uh, they did a very good job. Once you have exhausted that advantage, which is to say, once your market capitalization reflects the advantage. And once, frankly, you've deployed enough capital in an area where you have a durable competitive advantage, your durable competitive advantage goes away. And Trey and his team very wisely, I think, understood that combining two companies did at least three good things, simply by virtue of the fact that the company was larger uh, it will enjoy more trading liquidity and hence a lower cost of capital. 
which allows them to compete better in a capital intensive business. Uh, the second thing it does necessarily, uh, unless the guys running it are gangsters, uh, which these guys are not, is it allows you to lower the general and administrative expense uh, relative to assets under management. Uh, basically, the same salary base can cover, can handle two companies, which was required of one company, which is, of course, a very good thing. The third thing that it does uh, is it increases the opportunity set available to managers. Uh, they don't have to focus on one project uh, or two projects or three projects because they have 30 or 40. Uh, these are very virtuous circumstances, which is why I have always liked uh, companies that had the experience and the sophistication that are necessary to affect roll-up strategies. Uh, you know, I look back at the success I enjoyed in the early days backing Bob Quarterman at Silver Standard uh, or Ross Beatty at Pan American Silver or later Ross Beatty uh, at Lumina Copper. And these all involved roll-up strategies. Uh, they, in every case, made acquisitions that were, um, you know, efficient uh, on a per share basis. But importantly, uh, they kept growing, they kept lowering their cost of capital, they kept increasing their trading liquidity, and they kept increasing their relevance. Uh, at the same time, in each case, they maintained a real firm grip on costs, uh, which is to say that they made sure that there were efficiencies in size because they didn't let the corporate overhead balloon uh, so well-executed M&A strategies uh, are superb ways to make money. EMX Royalty, uh, that prospect generator royalty company, another one you like that you're public on the record about, are they reaching this point to where it would be mindful or in the best interest of shareholders to be taken it over by, I don't know, a sandstorm of Mavericks or one of the billion plus dollar market cap uh, royalty companies? Uh, yes, uh, although I think their durable competitive advantage will last longer than Eli Gold's did. Uh, a geological Eli, advantage specifically? Yes, exactly. The ability to create royalties. Uh, the team at uh, EMX is uniquely good at looking at political jurisdictions that have geological endowments, moving into them, <clears throat> staking them, developing very, very, very high quality interpretations of the data, and then uh, selling that prospect on to major mining companies. Where they can't, they have done an excellent job of uh, attracting or sometimes even forming uh, joint venture partners in junior capital markets. Uh, and I suspect that EMX will be able to grow uh, given the size of the cash hoard that they enjoy and given the strength of their technical franchise. I think that they'll be able to grow independently if they want to uh, for at least five more years. I suspect, too, that if they sell, uh, it's unlikely that they will sell to a, a small royalty company, although I personally would prefer that. I believe if Dave Cole and his team sell out, that they'll likely sell out to a Franco or somebody like that, where they can stay together as an exploration team, but they lower their cost of capital as a consequence of being appended onto a much, much, much larger company. When I say I'd prefer a smaller one, I'd prefer a double bump. You know, I think the the leverage that a sandstorm uh, could enjoy or an Altius could enjoy by taking over EMX would be greater than the leverage that Franco would enjoy. So uh, from my own personal viewpoint, I uh, I would prefer if they were to be acquired, they'd be acquired by a 
entity that was relatively smaller. But my suspicion is that that isn't what will occur. But your opinion does matter. <laughs> so what do you own? 10% of the company? What's your what's your ownership of EMX? I'm, uh, it depends, I guess, on how you characterize my ownership. I, I would describe my ownership now as disaggregated from Sprott. Uh, I'm a Sprott shareholder, but I'm not a Sprott employee. So I would argue that my ownership needs to be differentiated from Sprott's ownership. If you treat us as one entity, uh, we're certainly over 10. Uh, but I would prefer that my ownership be measured by my personal ownership or by funds that I sub-manage. And in that case, I'm probably uh, circa 5%. You just completed your symposium, second year in a row online symposium. I always ask you this question the week or the second week after, what did Rick Rule learn at his own symposium this year? A lot. Uh, my favorite part of the symposium has always been the Living Legends series, where we invite uh, people who have built multi-billion dollar companies from scratch, uh, and we question them about the process of building the companies, not from the point of view of chess beating promotion, but rather, uh, what lessons did you learn? What mistakes did you make? Uh, and, and how did the process make you a better investor for your own account? Uh, what lessons that you learned are easy for you to impart to our attendees? Um, and so, uh, you know, as always, uh, I, I enjoyed that. Uh, one of the highlights for me is always interviewing Robert Friedland. Uh, I've been interviewing Robert Friedland for 30 years, and his mind is so fertile that every interview <laughs> is fresh. Uh, <laughs> he's just an absolute joy for a guy like me. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I think that was pleasant. Uh, the third thing that we learned, frankly, is that uh, the guy who produces and directs the conference, Albert Liu, uh, can do this. I was terrified last year that after having done physical conferences for 20 years that we wouldn't be able to do a virtual conference. Uh, last year's conference was good and this year's conference was better. Uh, so simply the fact that from our point of view, the technology works uh, and you can simultaneously educate people in 30 countries <laughs> uh, with participants in four or five countries is spectacular. Next year, provided that the Canadian government will let us across the border still, uh, we intend to return to Vancouver to a physical conference, but it will certainly have a very strong virtual overlay. The technology, the virtual technology uh, frees me in a sense from the tyranny of time. Uh, in a physical conference, you can't be in more than one place at more than one time, which is an example meant necessarily that my attendees uh, missed three workshops every hour because they were attending one. Virtually, you can toggle back and forth between workshops if you want to. And certainly we're going to record all of them and live stream them. So if you're in the Ross Beattie workshop, you can later on uh, toggle over to the Sean Rosen workshop. And so I think the combination of uh, physical and virtual gives us the opportunity next year to really hit the ball out of the park uh, in terms of our conference product. We've also learned that uh, defeating the tyranny of time, which is to say we have too many things to teach uh, in the time that we can probably teach it, 
necessitates uh, pre-conference activities and post-conference activities, all of which will be virtual. As an example, this year, uh, I did a talk which was extremely well-received uh, on how to interview exhibitors. Uh, I took up 30 valuable minutes of conference time that should have been dedicated to uh, information or exhibitors. This educational product should have been released by myself before the conference uh, as, a video, as, a, as a video product so that my attendees could already be equipped uh, with a, a question checklist before. Is it still nine questions? Am I getting it right? No, I, I took it down to six questions. Six, okay. Yeah, I took it down to six questions because what I wanted to do was give the attendees a, a way to interview companies five or six minutes at a time so that then they could know which companies that they wanted to go back to and do in-depth interviews. You know, I, if you're confronted by 50 exhibitors, uh, what you need to do is think about what holes in your own portfolio you need to fill with the exhibitors. And you need to quickly throw away exhibitors that don't meet the profiles that you've established for your own investments. And so I tried to give uh, attendees the ability to fairly quickly sort through exhibitors so that they could decide uh, what companies to spend more time and, and attention on. And that should have been uh, a product that I had, aware, that I had available ahead of time. Uh, next year, too, uh, I'm going to do uh, probably an hour-long presentation for exhibitors. Uh, to explain to uh, exhibitors how they can make it more efficient for attendees to listen to their stories. There's a bunch of exhibitors that, because they have lives, uh, haven't studied uh, how to do conferences very well. And it isn't that they're deliberately withholding information. It's that they don't know how to deliver information. I happen to know how to deliver information. So one of the things I've learned is that next year, uh, before the conference, uh, I can deliver short course uh, product that will make the conference much more useful to attendees. So you're having fun with Rural Investment Media, it sounds like. Having a, having a ball. Uh, you know, Rural Investment Media is, a, <laughs> among other things, an unregulated activity. So I don't have to run every word I say uh, past compliance to see if it satisfies some bureaucrat within the state of California or the province of Ontario or the SEC. And so I feel uh, liberated in a true sense of the word. There were interviews that I did in the past where I sort of felt I was constrained by saying anything that was useful. Um, and, you know, that was dispiriting. Mm -hmm. Well, Rick, uh, this content you just produced for your conference, is this available to people that did not attend? I know in the past you offer it via purchase. Is there, is there that possibility? Yes, we will come once the conference is totally archived. We'll come uh, with a uh, you know, post-conference package that people can buy. Some of the timeliness, of course, will be gone and we'll offer it for a lower price. The educational material will be good. Uh, the educational material will be there and, and we'll probably take select pieces of it, which we think have high educational value, but no uniqueness uh, and put them in front of the paywall, uh, you know, put them on the YouTube channel and stuff like that. The, the pieces that I would consider to be timeless pieces, including probably, I hope the interview with Robert uh, and the discussion uh, about uh, how to interview uh, mining company IR people, I would hope that we will be able to put uh, on a YouTube channel or somewhere 
because I think they should be broadly available. Excellent. Well, I'm going to put a link to Rick's YouTube channel in the show notes. Make sure you go and subscribe. And who better to learn from than Rick? If you want to vet these companies for yourself when you're looking for possible junior mining investments, learn from the best. Watch some of Rick's interviews with CEOs that he has posted on the channel and then be on the lookout for this lesson that Rick talked about. Really appreciate you coming on my show again, Rick, uh, and just contributing to my life and growth as an investor. So thank you very much. A pleasure. And I would once again invite your listeners, uh, if they care about what I think about mining stocks, to find out with regards to their own portfolio. Uh, if you go to webform, uh, sproutusa.com forward slash rankings, I personally will rank your uh, natural resource portfolio. Please, once again, no pot stocks, uh, no tech stocks, no crypto. <laughs> I'll rank them one to 10, one being best, 10 being worst. And where appropriate, I'll comment on individual issues. So I, I look forward to communicating with your audience, Bill. I had a, a, a number of really good conversations uh, after our last interview, which, by the way, you might want to link to, too. I think that, yes. was, a, that was a particularly nice session that uh, Mr. Lenny and yourself and I did. Uh, a real how-to session. I really enjoyed doing it. And I got spectacular feedback from your listeners on that. As did I. And I will also link to the, the, the link on the Sprout website so people can sign up for the portfolio review as well. Great. Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. And don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. 
If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.